We all want to be part of something bigger than ourselves, something that both started before us and reaches beyond us. This summer, we look to the entire Bible to see God's mission in the world and how He calls His people to join Him in it. As we as a church look to beginning a new congregation, we turn towards the scriptures to see how God moves us out on mission. Join us this summer for a missional conversation. All right, well, kids ages three through pre-K can head down with the Baileys to Holy Cross Kids Worship. The rest of you, if you have a Bible with you, go ahead and turn in it to the New Testament book, 2 Corinthians. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, it's cool. We got the text that we're going through is in your bulletin. It's in your order of worship. If you don't own a Bible, we've got a bunch on the back table we'd love to give you. That's our gift to you. Uh, But it'd be great for you to have the text in front of you. Just so you know, I'm not making this stuff up, okay? So we have spent this summer looking at this theme of the mission of God in the scriptures, and we're, we're coming close to the end. We've really just got about three more weeks, um, two more after this one, and that means we have that same amount of time before we get to put some of the things we've been talking about into practice through Friendship Sunday. And so if you're a member of Regular Tender, you know what that means um, as we come closer to it. You know, the thing is about mission is that it's easy to get distracted it is so easy to get distracted. We can get pulled into different arenas, which, which is really evident if you were to take a look at all of the literature on the idea of mission in, in the Christian world. Uh, there's, there's a lot of different ideas of what this means. And so a couple weeks ago, we talked about the message of our mission, the message that we bring. Last week, we looked at the strategy, right? We looked at the fact that uh, we, we become all things to all people, so in every way we might be able to save some. This week, we look at the center, the core of what we're talking about when we talk about mission. The core is important because from that core come lots of implications, from that core come lots of applications. But if we don't get the core right, we won't get either implications or applications. We'll get nothing. Okay. So as we come into, let's, uh, if you're in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that's our place for this morning. If you'd stand, that's our habit here in honor of God's word. We're going to be reading verses 11 through 21. Friends, this is God's very word given to us. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. But what we are is known to God, and I hope it's also known to your conscience. We're not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you cause to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast about outward appearance and not about what is in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we're in our right minds, it is for you. For the love of Christ controls us because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ... God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through 
us and we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake he made him who, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come into this time, we, we know what we bring in this room. Some of us bring joy and, and lives that are full of faith. Others of us are full of doubts and questions. Um, some of us are already bored because someone drug us here and, and we are looking for the door. Wherever we are, we pray you'd meet us. We're probably somewhere in between those things. We all have the same need. We need to hear the gospel of Jesus again to have it applied to us and to be pressed deeper into it. And so we ask that you would do that this morning. You would create faith where there is none, that you would bring healing where there is hurting, and that you would bring hope where there is despair. Let Christ and his cross come to the fore, and the one who speaks fall to the wayside, Lord, for you alone hold the words of eternal life. So we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat. So when I was growing up, summer meant a lot of different things. I don't know if you knew this, but for most of the children in our area, summer's over, right? Uh, they, they started school a couple weeks ago. Uh, some of the others of you are starting here in, in the next week. Uh, but for me, growing up, summer meant a lot of things. It meant um, evenings on the lake. It meant staying up really late because the sun didn't go down until like all hours, and so you could stay up forever. Uh, it meant staying at my best friend's house where we... we uh, we just got like gallivant in the woods. He had this big horse farm. We'd gallivant in the woods for what felt like days. It meant at least one week at my grandparents' house where um, I would get to do things like walk down to the corner 7-Eleven to waste my money on Slurpees and trading cards, uh, go to um, Bob's Big Boy. Ah, my grandparents loved that place, but it was terrible. Um, it meant rides on the metro and at least at least one trip into D.C. to go to a museum, hopefully not the National Gallery of Art, but my grandfather was a stickler for art, so it was, sometimes that was that. These are all great parts of summer. But what made summer, summer, was not those things. What made summer, summer, was not having to go to school. Because if I had to go to school, I couldn't have done any of that. All of those things were simply implications of what it meant to be out of school for three months, my parents not knowing what to do with me. And so sending me off to different things, right? Mission's kind of the same way. Christian mission can have lots of effects that are awesome. As a matter of fact, if if the church is being the church in a city, the city should change, it should be transformed. Uh, And and one of the goals here of this church is that we want to be a kind of people and and a group that if we were to vanish next week, that, that our community would grieve it. Those effects are great. It should mean a more humane city. It should mean community development. It should mean stronger marriages, grace-filled families. It should mean the margins of society being cared for. Those are all things that it should mean. But the problem is, is that those are effects, not the cause. Often they're made the cause. They're made the point of mission, that the church is about strong families. The church is about community development. The Bible, though, teaches us that the core of mission is a relationship. 
a relationship, a reconciled relationship. And so this passage takes us there. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to dig into that. And so we're going to do that in a few ways. There's an outline in your bulletin if that's helpful to you. We're going to look at the, the need for reconciliation, first and foremost. We're going to look at the means of reconciliation. And then lastly, we're going to look at the mission of reconciliation. And what we're going to see is simply this. That the center of our mission is a relationship with the God that we were made for. The center of our mission, the core of our mission is a relationship with the God that we were made for. Okay? So let's get started with our need. I know this is probably bizarre for many of us, but Christianity is an inherently relational faith. And that probably seems really weird, especially if you grew up in the church in different areas. That, that's totally not what you saw. What you saw was a lot of hypocrisy and fakeness, right? But, but in fact, the Christianity is inherently relational. And the Bible is really huge on this idea, really, even if it isn't readily apparent to us. So let me just give us a couple of ways this comes out. And here's the largest reason. Christianity is inherently relational because the Christian view of God is inherently relational. That the faith is relational because God is relational. And at the center of our faith is God. Okay? That may sound weird, so let me explain really quickly. The Christian view of God is that God is one God in three persons, right? That's where you get that word Trinity from. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, each fully God, uh, but three persons, but one God. All are equal in power, substance, and eternity. That's the language that our confession uses. Um, and, And some of you are thinking, like, that really doesn't explain it at all. I know, the church has tried to figure this out for a couple thousand years. We've come up with ways to, explain, to express it, not necessarily to explain it. Okay? But these three, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, are eternally in relationship with one another, glorifying and delighting in one another. And that is why, that is why the New Testament can say that God is love. Not that God is loving, but that he is love, that it is inherent to his very being, God is love because before there was ever any creation, he existed in a loving relationship with himself in the three persons of the Godhead. And that is why views of God that are not Trinitarian, like every other one, I mean, you could name a few, like in Islam, or um, even those who, uh, you know, Jehovah's Witnesses, Unitarians, things like that, cannot claim that their God can be love. Maybe loving, but not love. More likely power, uh, almightiness. Love is preeminent in Christianity because God does not need creation to be relational. That is who he is from all eternity. But not just that, though. Christianity is also relational. I mean, that would be enough. If we just started there, that would be fine. But it actually works itself out. But Because the Bible says God created the world in a relational way. The, the Bible will use the word to shalom to talk about uh, the way that God created everything. Shalom, maybe you're familiar with that word. It means peace. Now, for us, peace means like no hostility, a cessation of hostilities. And that is it. But in But in the Bible, that word shalom has to do with all of the relationships, the interrelationships of all of creation being lined up perfectly. The relationship between God and humanity, between humanity and creation, between uh, creation and itself, like everything kind of lining up exactly as it was meant to be, fitting together perfectly. And so with humanity created as kind of the pinnacle of that, we were created to live in a dependent relationship with God. 
And it's from that relationship, our relationship with God, that everything else kind of hung together. We were made for God. And all of creation functioning well begins there. But now some of you know the story, right? That that's not the way things are now. Even if you don't know the story, you can look around and see that that's not the way things are now, right? The reason the Bible gives for why that is is equally relational. Even if, if everything was meant to hold together in kind of a relational way, the, the, the reason that things are fractured is equally relational because we turned away from God. Now, when we hear the word sin, many of us end up thinking about breaking of arbitrary rules, right? We can think of it from anything from like missing the mark, if maybe if you were involved in, in like youth group or, or a, a college ministry for a while, you heard that, that sin is missing the mark, as if it's an archery term, um, some kind of shooting contest. Well, it, yeah, sure. Maybe it means something like that or, or even like immorality. A lot of us end up thinking about sin as immorality. Uh, but the root of that idea is betrayal. Now, we don't see that. We don't see that because the Bible has rules and, and sin is breaking rules, right? Yes. But even those rules aren't kind of arbitrary. They're based on the nature of God, When God says that that you're not to bear false witness, we're not to lie to one another, the reason for that is not because he just thought one day, like, huh, lying. I don't like that. We'll throw that on there. It's because he is a truth teller. He is truth. And if he is truth, to, to commit lies is to somehow not just offend against a rule, but against the one who is the truth. Well, we could do the same with all of these. When we reject that way of being, being true, being a life giver instead of a life taker, those things, we are rejecting him as well. And so when we betrayed God, all of those relationships suddenly became unglued. They all kind of came apart at the seams and shalom came undone. And so if that's the case, if God is relational, he created creation to be relational in relationship, and that our problem was that we fractured a relationship and everything came undone, then it only makes sense that to make things right, whether that's social justice or strong families, that what needs to get fixed is what got messed up in the first place. Right? That's why Christianity is relational. Now, let's jump into our text. Okay? Paul writes this section because of a conflict, or a religious conflict, and that conflict stems from pretty much what we just talked about. So look down at verses 11 to 13. You see, after Paul planted this church, he's uh, planting a church. So you're like, is it a, is it, what, what, does it have roots? Like, that's, that's our churchy lingo for starting a church. He started the church in Corinth. And after he did so, he moved on to go start new ones, to go start more churches. And after he left, other teachers came in. He was an apostle. They called themselves super apostles. Not really sure what makes you a super apostle, whether it's an S on your chest or a cape, but he was the super apostle. And then they would begin teaching that Paul, what Paul had wasn't enough. That there wasn't enough flair in what he said, not enough um, intricacy of substance and system, that it can't be quite right. It's a little too easy. So that's why in verse 12, Paul talks about commending himself. Because these other teachers have come and saying, Paul, Paul wasn't quite accurate. He didn't quite have it as right as we do. Let, let me tell you exactly how this is supposed to work with our philosophical flair and our substance and our systematic approach to things that that creates all of these structures around Jesus. So Paul is defending his apostleship. He's defending his gospel. And here's why this is necessary. Religious people hate the fact that Christianity is relational. 
And when I say religious people, I don't just mean people outside of Christian churches. Some of us in here are very religious. We've been coming to this church, and we don't like the fact that Christianity is relational. Because what we want is we want rules to keep. We want rituals to follow. But a relationship to be restored, uh, I don't know about that. Because you see, rules and rituals are controllable. We can, have, we can wrap our hands around them. Even if we think to ourselves that we're not exactly doing all that we should, we still know exactly what we should be doing to get what we want, right? It's very controllable. And if we broke rules, fundamentally the issue was broken rules, then we might, exact, we might make it better by keeping them. If we simply need to attain enlightenment or submit to the all-powerful deity, then we simply follow the rituals needed to accomplish that goal, right? But if we broke a relationship, hmm, If we broke a relationship, that means there's a person on the other end of things. A person that we've betrayed. And we know from experience that betrayals aren't that easy to make up for. Right? That's true today, too. Look, I know that every week, what all of us in this place, myself included, want to hear is some measure, some some kind of variation on the theme of we're not that bad, God's not that good, In our situation, though we might be a little sick, is manageable. Right? That's what we want to hear. Because then we can feel better about ourselves. We we can leave with a plan. We want denial. We want to believe that we're still in control, that our hope can be in our ability to reform. Or we want to believe that we're so far gone, it no longer matters. That is what we want because both of those notions... Now listen close, because this is totally uh, counterintuitive. But both of those notions, both that we're only a little bit gone and that we're too far gone to ever matter, are both methods to keep ourselves distant from God. Both keep us in control and help us avoid. Both are afraid that if we're both fully known, well, that if we're fully known, we can't possibly be fully loved. So, one avoids God through rules, The other avoids God through rebellion. But we're all just avoiding God. But Paul says something important here in verse 11. Look there. He says, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. Now, when you and I hear fear, we think terror, right? We're thinking one of the latest slasher movies or something like that that just gets us crazy. And so our suspicions about Christianity become confirmed. That really what Christianity and all religion is really about is just using fear to uh, keep people in control. Well, that's what we think because we hear fear and we think terror, but that's not biblical fear. In the Bible, fear doesn't mean terror. Uh, Fear means like awe, being in awe of someone. And so what Paul is saying is because, he's saying, because I get how amazing God is. Because I understand how incredible he is, I persuade others. Not because I'm terrified of him. Why would you want to persuade others to follow someone you're terrified of? Not likely, right? Paul's mission is born out of getting something about God. He, got, he understood something about him, something about his character, something about his glory, something about God that he thinks is so good. He's got to persuade others to come and be a part of this. Okay, you with me? Good. Now let's look at the means of reconciliation. Look down at verse 14. 
if this, if this is our problem, if our problem is that we, are, uh, we have a broken relationship and that that relationship has kind of forced us into an area where now we seem to be caught in this, like, I'm going to try and avoid this dude, whether, he, whether I do it through rules or through rebellion, how, how is it that this can be fixed? Paul says it this way. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all and therefore all died. All right. Now, what is this talking about? Friends, this is, this is the reconciling work of God. We are stuck as betrayers of God, like I just said, that our ways of dealing with that betrayal are equally marked by betrayal. They simply make it worse. And so God comes to us. He comes to us while we were running from him. And here's the thing about betrayals. And you know this because you've been betrayed and you've been the betraying. Betrayals incur guilt. They incur guilt. We know this. We experience this. And this is why Jesus came and died. He came to bear the guilt from our betrayal. And I know, I know even as I say that, some of us are just like knocked on our heels. That's really offensive. Because on the one hand, it seems like God is incredibly unjust. You have an innocent dude dying for guilty people. How can God be just with an innocent dude dying for guilty people? Or maybe, you've, maybe you took some religion classes in college, and so this whole idea to you now, because of uh, some rhetoric, gets dropped into the, the category of cosmic child abuse. God the Father beating his son for the rest of us. When we think this, though, we are forgetting what I said at the beginning about the Christian view of God. Jesus is fully God. Fully God. In Jesus, God is receiving the punishment due for our sin. God is. Not some pious representative for him. God himself. This isn't cosmic child abuse. It's forgiveness. This is what forgiveness always is. It's the betrayed person bearing the weight of that betrayal for the betrayer. The betrayed person bearing the weight of the betrayal for the betrayer. He's carrying the offense. And so look down at verse 21 because Paul clarifies this. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That, that phrase, for our sake, literally means in our place, on our behalf. It is the language of substitution. Jesus took our place. He became sin so that we might take his so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, righteousness doesn't just mean kind of goodness. It means faithfulness. It means uh, being faithful to promises. That very thing that we are not. Faithfulness to a promise-bound relationship. We became as if we had been perfectly faithful to God. Now, look at the results, though, because this is huge. Because normally we stop there, and when we stop there... I get Jesus' record. He gets my record. It sounds like a get-out-of-hell-free card. Right? And so we get that, and we're like, this is great. I never have to pay for anything that I've done. Open season, you know? But look at verse 15. Paul says, And he died for all. That's Jesus. Jesus died for all. That those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who, for their sake, died and was raised. Here's what this means. The goal isn't pardon. The goal isn't pardon, it's reconciliation. Because the problem wasn't just guilt, it was a fractured relationship. And so if, if, 
If the problem is a fractured relationship, the goal is reconciliation. We were made for God. We were made for a dependent relationship with him. So Jesus didn't just die to get us off the hook. He died to bring us back to God. To bring us back to himself. To make us dependent again. And that is why the 16th century Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin would say that we are saved by faith alone. Right? That we are reconciled to God through Jesus when we've placed our faith in him. That it's not through faith plus what we do. Right? Most of you, that's familiar to you. Right? We are saved by faith alone. But they would follow that up by saying, but the faith that saves is never alone. That though we're saved by faith alone, that the faith that saves us is never alone. And it's because when we place our faith in Jesus, we are reconciled to God. So look at verse 17. Paul says, If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, this is so huge, and we have to get this. Jesus does not make reconciliation with God possible. That'd be pretty good, though, right? Jesus made a way. He made a way for me to be reconciled, and all I have to do is follow that way, right? That would sound great. Matter of fact, I think there are some hymns that say that. Jesus does not make reconciliation possible. He accomplishes it. He accomplishes it. Jesus doesn't just reform an old sinner. He makes a new creation. Have you met him? Don't gloss over at this. I don't mean do you know a little bit about him. Do you you realize how amazing this is? Every other, every other world system is going to tell you, follow this path and, you, and you'll be good. And when you break it, well, whew, tough on you, man. Be good like me and we'll all be okay. That's not what Christianity gives you. It doesn't give you a path to get to God. It gives you God coming to get you. Grabbing you. Reconciling you. Make sure you get this straight because it is the center of everything that we are about here. Some of us here have betrayed God by saying, we don't really need a savior. That we're not really that bad, that everything's really okay, and all I need to do is have a few rules that I can keep. I can come to church on Sunday, I can put my check in that basket. Maybe I can be involved outside of that, and I'll be okay. We're pretty good on our own. We don't need to be dependent on him. Others of us have betrayed God by thinking that he could never satisfy us. Are you kidding me? God can satisfy me? No way. And even if he could, he wouldn't receive us even if we wanted to come back. So we're so torn up. If you were in one of those categories or somewhere in between, can I tell you something? Jesus came for you. Paul says that he died for all. Meaning all kinds of people. All kinds of sinners. Like the notorious and the beautiful ones. He came for all of us. And he did so to make you the righteousness of God in him. Not to kind of pretty up your own righteousness. Not to say that you could never come close to it. To make you the righteousness of God in him. Your sin is great. So is mine. Welcome to the club. But Jesus is greater. Jesus alone can reconcile you to God. Not your self-discipline. Not your self-gratification. Not your self-denial. Not yourself. 
He can reconcile you fully, and he will reconcile you, reconcile you fully if you come. He's amazing. That is the awe that Paul says, knowing the fear of the Lord, knowing how great he is, I try and persuade everybody. Just like I'm trying to persuade you now. Now the mission. Look down at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, all this is from God, who has reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. I love this because when Paul wants to get something across, and he does this at multiple points in his letters, um, and he wrote a bunch, like 13 of them in the New Testament are all from him. When he wants to get something across, he begins stacking words. He said the word reconciliation four times in two verses. And you only really notice that if you just read the two verses, because it sounds really awkward, right? This is it. Paul is saying, God reconciled us to himself. He brought us back and sent us out to take that same message, that same hope, that same core to others. Notice, though, he, he doesn't talk about social impact here. He doesn't talk about private morality. He doesn't talk about strong marriages or Christian education. He's not talking about a theology of work or even justice. Now, here, here's where some of us are going to get off track. Because right now, some of you are angry because I just stepped on uh, what is your pet issue. And others of you are feeling really justified because I just stepped on someone's pet issue that bugs you. Right? The message is reconciliation. The ministry is reconciliation. But what happens when reconciliation happens. Shalom happens. Things are brought back into uh, relationship again. As people are reconciled to God through the gospel of Jesus, the message of reconciliation we then take out from us and we begin living it, which results, or should, in just relationships, in strong marriages, in social impact, in dignified work. In fact, if it doesn't, if your faith on Sunday makes no impact in your life Monday through Saturday, it's time to take a look at whether or not your faith on Sunday is real. Because it needs to. Paul would say, if that, at that point, that we are not living in line with the gospel. But those things are not possible without being reconciled to God. And that is why the church has been so stubborn about this being the center of mission. And it's why this church in particular is so stubborn about this being the center. Because if we chase all of those things apart from reconciliation with God, we will find neither. But if we move towards reconciliation, if we are reconciled to God, we are new creation. And then we can live out these things by the same grace that we were reconciled to him with. And that brings us to verse 20. So look there real quick. Paul says, Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Now, as I say that, some of you, if, like, if you're paying attention and, and you know, Keeping your mind engaged as this is going on, some of you are thinking, that's really weird. Why would he be calling a church to be reconciled to God? Because isn't this written to a church? You'd be like, yeah, it is. Isn't that funny? 
Here's why he does that. Remember what I said a second ago about Paul having to defend his apostleship, having to defend his gospel? The implication he is making is that you can't be reconciled to God and be ambiguous or or ambivalent about the apostles and their gospel. And so some of us here, and look, when I say apostles, I mean the historical apostles, not somebody who stands up and says, I'm an apostle today. They're not. He means the original ones, okay? And so some of you are here, and you're like, yeah, I'm okay with God. I'm good with God, but, I, you know, I don't, I'm not real big on the Bible. I certainly don't like the whole Jesus died thing. Paul is saying, that's not possible. We are ambassadors, and God is appealing to you through us. You may think you're okay, but you're not. I love you. You're not. Paul is bringing the message of reconciliation. And because of that, he is an ambassador. And ambassadors are like officials, right? We get that. We live in a world that still has ambassadors. They go and they speak for the government uh, of their particular nation. They are delegations of a government. And in this case, of a king. The appeal that Paul is making is not an ask. It's a command. Because the king of the universe is calling to us through him. But one last thing, though, because it's important as we say that. The call is not reconcile yourselves to God. This command that's being made is not go reconcile yourselves. Do what you need to do to get things right. That is what religion would tell us. That is what our normal knee-jerk reaction would tell us. And that is why many of us, even if we are Christians, that is what we default to when we blow it. Is it not? Maybe you're you're in here this week like like me, and you blew it this week. And you're thinking like, what do I need to do? How do I need to get things right with God? How do I need to prepare my heart or or kind of um, get serious again or get my life straight? How do I do that? You can't. God has reconciled us to himself. God has done it. How is it that we are to be reconciled? Is it through moral fortitude? Is it through effort, through ritual? No. No. It's through faith in Christ. So come to Jesus and be reconciled. You're like, but I blew it this week. Great. Come to Jesus and be reconciled. But I've never known Jesus. Good. Come to him. Be reconciled. But you you don't know me, Rick. You're right, I don't. But I know him. He's awesome. He's great. He is enough. He's enough if you have never trusted him, no matter how far you think you are from God. He's enough if you've never trusted him, no matter how close you think you are to God. And he's enough if you've trusted in Jesus and you think you should have known better. Maybe you should have. Maybe I should have. But let me tell you something. Your efforts were not enough the first time you were reconciled to him and they are not enough now. The center of our mission, friends, is a relationship with the God that we were made for. It's the center of everything. So don't stand aloof from him, either because of your pride or because of your fear. Come to him. Return to Christ. Receive his grace. Be reconciled. And then discover how awesome he truly is. Would you pray with me?
God, my words fail me. I know I could stand up here and, and say with as much fervor as I could how great you are, but unless you come and you shine the light of the Holy Spirit into our hearts, we won't get it. Because words cannot contain the greatness of our God. And so, Lord, I pray right now for my friends here. I'm going to pray it even for myself. Would you show us your glory? Would you show us how awesome you are? So that, when, so that we can rest in the reconciliation that you have made with us through Christ. We can place our faith in him and just rest in that. And when we, when we blow it, we can, we can place our faith in Christ and, and know that we have, been recon- we have been reconciled to you. For my friends here, Lord, who think themselves too far gone, I pray, Lord, that you would show them the greatness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. My, for my friends here who believe themselves fairly good, good enough to not need a Savior, I pray that you would show them the greatness of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That you might build a reconciled community here and that we might go from this place seeking shalom in our city because you have made it so in our hearts. And we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.